Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon in A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 115, Davos 2, in A Dance with Dragons. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Adieu, with duh, if you will. And by that, I mean like oh D-E-U-X, like duh. Adieu, duh. Adieu. 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 We're reading Divos in Adieu, Adieu. Oh Divos. Divos. Uh, I, I'm really enjoying this reread of A Dance with Dragons with Davos. I These are strong chapters. He is strong on his own. I do too. Uh, in dance and also as following all the rest of his other chapters, I, it, all of his chapters are really strong. We have had a really good time talking a little bit about Davos in the Discord the last week. Uh, we've also announced the new POV Two patrons that are in the Thunder tier and above. If you're listening to this by Thursday, you will have access to that. But we have announced a new POV, and it's gotten everyone talking about some of these connections. And I, I'm seeing them. I'm seeing them for this POV in this chapter. So It's almost like we chose... <laughs> the pov that follows after on purpose it's almost like we chose any of these povs on purpose i we did we sat down we had a brain brain session there was a lot of negotiation right like there was a lot of like no i think this should go here and a lot of like all right all right you're right and then we're like wait but then where does this go and then we're like shit we forgot these and what we're trying to say is that soon you dear listener will be able to hear what the next one is the next one we're you and I, Eliana, were like, aha, what if we put here because of this part of this? Mm-hmm. It's like a jigsaw puzzle, but it's not going to mean anything. There's a recently one of the content creators whom I greatly admire, Feldman, Adam Feldman, put out another essay after it's been a while since he last put something out. And towards the end, he's, he was analyzing in his essay the growth of the Tyrion chapters in Adoada. And at the end wrote, hopefully someday, and I'm paraphrasing, but the words hopefully someday were actually verbatim. Hopefully someday I can analyze the growth of the Tyrion chapters over 10 years in The Winds of Winter. (laughs) I feel that way. Hopefully someday. (laughs) It'll all mean something when we look back on it. It was a really good essay, though, uh, and I knew you had probably already read it because there was no way you had not read a a Feldman essay that's been out. So the second I sent anything to you, you're like, yep, been there, done that. Uh, but <laughs> the, he also talked about how he's going to cover a chapter, which I went over and read the summary of it, but a chapter summary of Daenerys and the Fighting Pits in Marine, uh, one of its original stages that George read it as in 2003. So I'm really excited about that as well. And that'll be interesting when he does that, because as many know, this was, I think, originally George's opening chapter for Daenerys in A Dance with Dragons. Until, you know, he realized, wait, I have a mirror and he's not. We got to redo a bunch of things. As we all know, is now one of the le- last few Daenerys chapters in A Dance of Dragon. That is a jigsaw puzzle to figure out. And we will, I'll go ahead and I'll link those below. So make sure to check it out in the details of this episode. As well as anything else that comes up. Who knows? Anything could happen. As Davos is learning. <laughs> it's anyone's Game of Thrones. Yes, Fuck. <laughs> Along with some of those essays that we've been seeing around the internet, some people have sent us some really good thoughts of their own, and we actually got a lot of really great messages this week, and some are perhaps better suited for the next few Davos chapters, so we're going to leave a little bit a little bit left over and only cover a few of the emails we got. 
we got an email from our friend Will, and this is a really good one. I'm pretty excited about this. Will said, hey, girls and cats, important. They don't get enough shout outs. That's true. Like Actually, cats. they don't. You mentioned Davos's childhood mentor, Row Row Euhorus. His name sounds like George making a pun on Row Row Your Boat. I wonder if it actually is not just a pun, but also kind of like a class signifier with a subtle nod to the status of children here. Hot Pie, for example, is an orphan whose name came from his employer slash master, who made him yell that phrase so much it became his entire identity. Could Roro have a similar backstory, right? He could have started as a nameless orphan who found himself at work on a boat with men of different backgrounds repeating, row, row your oars, row oars. You know, it, it, he says that it's kind of the George R. R. Martin Hodor-esque name thing going on, right? Hodor, row your oars. Uh, and it also provides a future source of conflict, right? When we see Davos, who has various characters in his future that are the status of children. We've already seen Stannis and Edric Storm's conflict and how that affected Davos, but how would Davos respond to Varys and Illyrio's treatment of their little birds? What will he think of anyone who executes a child hostage? How will he react to finding out about Mel's backstory as a child slave? The way players manipulate child rulers, what about Rickon? Oh, we might talk about that one later. The ghost of Roro may well shape Davos's arc and wins, either explicitly or implicitly. There was a quick PS for you specifically, Aliana. I thought this was an interesting email. Like many of the best headcanons, expands on a lot of that emotional background for characters that we get that we only get a little bit of. That that idea, right? That his name is adapted from that, since as as Will says. George plays with this a little bit and giving it a little bit of uh, a tie-in with the themes that we're seeing in Davos's chapters, especially like here, right? We're seeing a lot of that discussion on children's safety in this chapter. Overall, I thought this was really clever, actually, with row, row, you Horus, row, row, your Horus, similar sound. So good catch on that. Yeah, I, I will. I have some of the same questions, right? Of like, I mean, if Davos even finds out what Varys and Illyrio are doing with the little birds and Melisandre's backstory and Rickon's, and I think you're going to talk about Rickon a little bit later in this episode and perhaps in, in further episodes. So those are questions yes. that I have. Keeping on track with the cats. Oh my god. We did greet the cats, right? We'll extended a greeting to them, and we're going to give them another nod from an email from Simon. This one tickled me a little. Simon says, I was catching up on Aswaf episode 106, Clash of Kings Davos 2, part 2. Wow, that's right. We did that. We did split up the Davos oh, chapters. These are dense. These are good chapters, these Davos chapters. Anyway, Simon says, in which Eliana ponders in the beginning of the episode whether a podcast podcast exists. Well, it does. I am a co-host of Mio, a Warrior Cats podcast, spelled P-A-W-E-D-C-A-T-S, which is honestly beyond my wildest dreams. That's way better than what I was <laughs> proposing before and said that we might like to know. And that's true. I did, in fact, want to know. So thank you, Simon. Your wildest cat dreams, even? Oh. Wow. Mm. What a nice email. You know, Simon, thank you so much because you have Eliana feline something special oh, right now. Amazing. <sighs> Promoted. And uh, damn, it's really it's really good. And we'll we'll link Simon's podcasts. Again, thank you, Simon, for letting us know. This has brought us great joy. Absolutely. This, of course, leads us into our lightning round. 
If you're new to us, or if you need a reminder, our lightning round is, of course, where we catch up on the chapters we missed in between Davos 1 and Davos 2. We'll start off with John 3. The free folk give up their belongings to find safety beyond the wall. John notes that Stannis' sword is false. Daenerys, too. Daenerys sees traitors around her. Quaith gives her guidance. Reek 1. Reek must help his master bring Arya Stark home. Bran 2. Deep within the cave, the three-eyed raven rests. Tyrion 4. Tyrion faces Halden in a game of Sivas, and they tread down the river aboard the Shy Maid. And that brings us to Davos 2, Adoida. Davos enters White Harbor for the first time in years and surveys the changes that come in wartime. Yes, Davos is sneaking into White Harbor as a common sailor aboard the ship the Merry Midwife. The cog is old, with a figurehead holding an infant by its foot. But woman and babe are pocked by wormholes, and the sails are tattered. So... I don't know what this means in the context of Davos's story, but it did feel significant in that we've spoken a bit about the myth of Achilles and Achilles' heel in Cersei and Jaime's storyline, mostly in Jaime's probably, and, and that heel being the weak spot, right? Because when Jaime and Cersei were born, uh, Cersei was born first, and then Jaime was holding her ankle as he came out. This figurehead, the woman is holding the baby by the foot. It's kind of reminiscent of that same myth, right? Of how Thetis, Achilles' mother, held him by the foot to dip him into the river, river Styx, which renders him almost immortal except for, again, his left heel, because she's holding him by that. And I, I don't know what it means. Maybe we're seeing something in this chapter that might be Davos's Achilles' heel. That's a great thought, but especially here with this figurehead, it's a woman holding an infant, right? And being pocked mm-hmm. by wormholes decaying in a way the first thing i thought of was shireen and how Celise oh. would have likely held her as a baby right and made me think of her with her grayscale uh but also here i think it reminds me of maria the merry midwife i think so too the figurehead when they show up holding an infant by its foot uh, and the woman and babe are both pocked by wormholes i mean they're pocked by the fucking scars of davos's absence and what has happened to her sons and her children the memories they're tainted and eaten away at. Yeah, she's had to deal all that on her own, right? While taking care of the two children. And yeah, there's a lot of things here that it could be. Well, Davos had not hoped to arrive in White Harbor this way, but plans sure had changed, as we know from last chapter. <laughs> had White Harbor sent Ravens of Allegiance, they might have had a merry arrival indeed. Stannis had hoped to show his strength with Davos arriving on the great Valyrian, the ship. And the Lysine fleet behind him, but of course the storms wrote an end to all of this, though, and now he must smuggle himself into the white walls of the city that erupt in front of him. And specifically, uh, part of what's called out in these lines and what was ended by the storm is that moniker of Salador the Splendid. And again, I know that we're strangely like Salador stands on this podcast, and... Uh, And this train of thought, I think, will deepen a little bit more as Davos reflects on what happened and the process is the storm. But, you know, Solidar, like, just really lost his fleet and his livelihood, like, a big portion of it for, like, his bro, Davos, you know? And he's got a lot of wives and kids to provide for here. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of people died, (laughs) probably, in those storms, too. Yeah, that, too. too. (laughs) So... (laughs) Uh, Who also might have had families, probably some. 
Yeah. It's not great. It does make me wonder, had they shown up in that manner, like in the phrase where they're like the exact same situation, that may not have gone so great. Yeah, I don't huh. really know how it would have gone, especially with people being like, as we'll see, people aren't really talking about saying this. They'll be like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> well, and obviously, as they say, like, once this, the second that Stannis found out, like, they weren't responding, that's when Davos was sent, right? To go infiltrate and figure it out and be a smuggler again, as we've discussed. He was sent for his smuggling skills uh, because otherwise he would have gone in. Guns blazing. It would have been like, pow, pow, we're here. Stannis, Stannis. And uh, and then all of White Harbor would be like, great. fuck no, fuck no. Yeah, especially with their 23 hidden ships as we get to it. Yeah, because things have changed, right? Davos hasn't visited White Harbor in at least six years, and the defenses have definitely strengthened, though he's trying to figure out how. And a large stone wall with towers has been erected, and seal rock... Which Davos only knew to be ruins had smoke rising from it, but I like to think of it as full of seals. They're the dogs of the sea. Well, and that's what's interesting is there there used to be seals, as we'll get to. Uh, Interesting about Seal Rock. So geographically, where White Harbor is, uh, and uh, I'm going to have you do something really magical. Put your fingers out in a triangle, Aliana, right now, if you will with me. This is a good exercise. So kind of like, okay, it's a spade. Okay, if your fingers are normal, it's kind of a spade. Pretend it's a triangle for me. So at the very tip, at the top, that's going to be White Harbor. On the left, in the very left corner, that's going to be the neck. And in your very right inner corner, that's going to be the sisters. So we're really not far, right? Like White Harbor, where it is geographically, it's basically the Vale South. Right? Like, it's barely part of the north. You're not too far in, geographically speaking. Also, if you recall, we were talking about Ashara Dane's possibility and being the fisherman's kin. Uh, Re-Ned makes it a lot more interesting when you think about it. Anyways, I digress. Hashara is alive. Uh, White Harbor's in the Bight. They're not in the Bay of Seals. Skagos, all the way around the continent, is in the Bay of Seals, with actual seals mm. and rocks. The language are dis- the language is described really interestingly. It says it sits at the mouth of the Bay of Seals, massive mountainous uh, caves, mountain fasces, basically that everything is stony. So it's really interesting that White Harbor, which is kind of out of place with their new money and their religion and their immigrants to the north who accepted them, uh, their geographical proximity... And where they are, they're trying to kind of copy into northern culture, right? Like having this big seal rock is very northern, but at the same time, their ways are not northern. They're economically very advanced. Uh, You walk into their city and it's a port city. You have the hustle and bustle. When you walk into this chapter, it's like Arya chapters in A Feast for Crows. You hear the hustle and bustle and see the hustle and bustle of the city as you read this chapter. And... Something interesting about that geographical proximity for White Harbor to me is the neck being so close to it. The neck is kind of on almost native land, right? Children of the forest land. Kind of the bridge between the north and the south. Uh They were annexed to the north, not really, you know, in their consenting to it. They were forced. The last Marsh King was defeated, forced to marry into the Starks. They were forever annexed. 
And both of these places, White Harbor and the Neck, want such different things. The Neck wants autonomy and respect to live their lifestyle. And the Manderleys are like, we want a place at the table. We want to control everything, man. We're here. We want to be economically sound. And the same time, while these places are so different, they are both so fierce in their loyalty to the North and how they believe in what the North's theme is, right? Like, they believed in Ned Stark's message in the way that Ned and Rickard and the men and women before them ruled the North. And I, I don't know, I think we see more of those parallels, not just geographically, but also on a more meta sense in the chapters, right? We meet Willa and Winifred, who both play very different roles in the next two chapters, in four and three, and uh, the, very similar to Jojen and Mira, right? With the Pact of Ice and Fire. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And I think those are great comparisons between the two. And as you're saying, right, they might have those differences, but they have that loyalty and they both have absolutely their role to play in terms of the northern like ecosystem or something. Right. And you were talking about the the Manderleys and, and the people of White Harbor, right, in some ways being many immigrants to the north. And it's interesting that they're still seen as like that in between of sort of outsiders sort of not and we'll probably dig into this more next chapter considering that technically if you look at it they've been there thousands of years but that maybe that doesn't mean anything george is like time whatever fuck that street cred yeah and and but it still comes through in some of the ways things are named in the in the city right like the seat of the manderleys is called newcastle and we're gonna we're gonna come to its steps this chapter but for now davos is Recalling his visits to White Harbor again aboard the Cobble Cat, which was Roro's boat, it was smaller. White Harbor is smaller than Old Town and King's Landing, but it's neat, clean, well-ordered with wide cobbled streets. And Roro used to say he could tell one port from another by the way they smelled like women. Old Town was flowery as a de- perfumed dowager, Lannisport as a milkmaid, fresh and earthy and wood smoke in her hair, and King's Landing reeked like an aunt unwashed woman while white harbors was sharp salty and fishy and then he describes it as the way a mermaid smells of the sea uh we get a lot of personification of the ships in this chapter of the port of the buildings and of course just the places in general the cities and when the chapter the chapter that came right before this preceding this Tyrion talks about the Shy Maid in these very similar mm. terms. He talks about how the Shy Maid is really apt for Lamore because with her stretch marks and her saucy personality towards him, she's not really a Shy Maid. So he's like, ah, it's kind of fitting in an ironic sense. Uh, I think learning a lot about these port cities and their economy and how things run here and the, how the people make money, how they live. I love being on the ground. I love seeing that through characters like Davos and Arya and even Brienne at times. Yeah, and I that's something that's really nice about this chapter, right? In that we get that personality of, as you were saying, on the ground, both between what's happening right now in the city and also through Davos's memories of what it was like. And you get to see how that city's grown. And and I, I just like that description in general, the personification of cities. I don't really have a deep insight into it other than, like, as a person who has been in the world, we live in a society what Roro said about cities each having their own personality. I, I really do feel that way about cities, that each one kind of has its own 
personality, it's all its own sort of organism. Not necessarily like a woman, but a person. Maybe some of them are women, though. I don't know that they actually all smell different. Some of them all smell bad the same way, but not in every place. But anyway. Yeah, the people are the cars and the blood cells and, you know, yeah, just moving absolutely. back and forth every day within the city system. I like, like that Like Osmosis a lot. Jones. Yes, I was thinking of that when I was thinking of blood cells and what they look like, even though that's not what they look like. <laughs> I mean, don't they look like Apple Jacks? They might look like, like that, but like shape-wise, I feel like that's that might they be do. the school bus. No, also that I was going to also propose another another one. Um, there's this anime. Fuck, I forgot what it's called. It's like red blo- like blood cells and something similar idea. It's called cells at. It's called Cells at Work, and it's a great educational show about how your body works. And you have some pe- little characters who are like the red blood cells, and some are the T cells, and then it's real cute. The more you know. <laughs> Davos smells some new scents, right? White Harbor hasn't specifically changed, but there's some new scents, like the smoke coming from Seal Rock. Seal Rock juts into the water about 40 to 50 feet. It's topped with a ring fort of weathered stones of the first men. Interesting. For centuries, they'd been empty, but now Davos sees scorpions and spitfires hiding behind the stones and crossbowmen manning them as well. So this is kind of insignificant, but the language here kind of reminds me and parallels what happened at the Fist of the First Men, right? With all that first men stuff around here, and then for the first time in many years... So many people there preparing for war, just like how the rangers were doing the first enormous ranging in a while. That entire ring uh, being like this interesting ring of, Uh you know, stones jutting up. You know, very Stonehenge. The the stones in a circle of the first men. I'm not trying to say the, the pattern from the show with the others, but... Maybe it means something after all. Who knows? Yeah, and I mean, George is, of course, very much inspired by those kinds of structures. Not necessarily the show, mm-hmm. but I mean, of course, the show, because again, he's he, he's writing it based off of that. Yeah. Easter Island shit. Mm-hmm. And as you said, literally Stonehenge. Yeah. I don't know how inspired he is by this, but I'm inspired by the seals that used to bask on the rocks. And when Davos was younger, Roro had told him to always count the seals, because the more seals there are, the more luck. Well, shit, because there are no seals now. Eliana, when I tell you that Davos, Davos, our Davos, Davos Seaworth, had the audacity, the audacity to then think, I can't believe I have to say this. If I had a thimble full of sense, I would have gone south with Sala, to Maria, to our sons. I've lost four sons in the king's service, and my fifth serves as his squire. I should have the right to cherish the two boys who still remain. It has been too long since I saw them. When I tell you that this motherfucker had the nerve to think that, Eliana, the nerve... Chloe has this, uh, I'm sure you would all recognize this meme, I don't know what it's called, of that little boy going. He's making a really unimpressed face. Yeah. You know, the little boy meme, yeah, I don't know, it's like a school picture or something. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Davos is starting to show a little self-awareness here, right? Before he's kind of vlogging, now he's kind of like, mm, I'm being kind of foolish, aren't I? What am I doing? <laughs> And I, you know what? This was the regret stage. I'm glad that at least he's recognizing uh, 
that Salador was not necessarily wrong. Could have gone south with him. Sala was a bro, dude. Yeah, I, uh, I just... He kills me. You were so close, Davos, and... That happens a few more times. The thing is, he, in this chapter, he, he, I know it keeps happening. He, we're getting to the point where like Stannis was like, "Why me? It's Davos now." Uh, what's crazy is before this, every the, this wouldn't happen because if we didn't have every single person gassing Davos up all the time, right? Everyone is always gassing him up. Right before he came here, he sailed from Eastwatch. The Black Brothers had been all like, oh yeah, the Manderleys and Boltons, they have major beef. Like, if Wyman sides with Stannis, that, that would be super smart. Roose is doing the worst right now with the North. Like, Wyman was owed it. Yeah. Yeah. But at the very least, these are interesting chapters, right? Like, it's these lines from the Night's Watch that, to me, really set the tone for this chapter, because, like, while the previous chapter set the stage for Davos's skills as, like, literally an ambassador of the Stannis Baratheon regime, I think that this one shows the other side of his skills in politicking and gathering intelligence. Like, this is a regret that I have. I didn't write these books, but if I were George, it would be a regret of mine, where I feel like if he were to rewrite Clash... Today, as the writer that he is, with the sorts of things that he's interested in, he would have written those chapters where Davos and his sons go and deliver the news about the Lannister heirs being bastards, and really show us the reaction of the small folk to those news, and, and towards Stannis, and getting that sense. And looking back on it as I read both this book and Fire and Blood and see George's progression, I, I do think it's really remarkable that we hardly get anything about that, right? Like, the lines are very brief, and after the fact, and I feel that Davos here, when he's at the Lazy Eel, and, and really talking to the apple seller and everything. It's similar to that in spirit and where he's just gathering that information. I never would have thought what after Clash would have happened, you know, during that time if that had actually been seen. I would have loved to see him interact more. And mm -hmm. I think this is what this chapter and the last chapter really sell is letting him shine on his own. Yeah. And a lot of small, like the small folk stuff in this chapter especially is... I know George could write 800 chapters about Arya and Bravos, but that would be fun of just Davos smuggling adventures. Ocean's Eleven Davos books, you know? Actually, though, that is what his life was maybe a little bit like. And a lot of Arya's chapters in Bravos, right, explore similar ideas of everyday people and their lives. And I, I just think that, you know... Davos reports to Stannis, he gives him kind of the truth, but how much of it is couched versus what we would have seen of like how people really think, which is what this chapter gives us insight on. Yeah. Well, Davos doesn't have much hope, right? Uh, if what he learned at Sisterton is true, the Manderleys are about to join up with the Freys and Boltons and Lannisters. He prays he isn't too late, and he gets on in. The Merry Midwife pulls in her sail. And he watches this new large wall that has been built, and it concealed the inner harbor, he realized, which is the better place to land. The city looms on one side, and the wolf's den is on the other, with Newcastle rising behind the thick white walls. He realizes Wyman had been building ships, and uh, he looks for him a little, and he's like, wow, he could have like a score of them within these walls. We'll see them a little later. Davos sees the domed sept of snows surrounded by tall statues of the seven. While the Manderleys had brought their gods north, they still honored the old as well, 
uh, with a tangled weirwood growing behind the wolf's den. The wolf's den serves mostly as prison now, though the Septons ran most things here. So, three different thoughts, not necessarily all related regarding this. And one, the Sept of the Snows just has a cool name. I, I really like the way it sounds. Awesome. Another is of all the cities we've seen, and this is just top of mind, because Chloe and I are, in fact, on an adventure through the free cities on our Patreon. And it's interesting to see that while the old gods, yeah, are less favored here, they are accepted, right? It, we are in the north, of course, and it kind of reminds me of the free cities uh, over in Essos with, you know, White Harbor being a place where there is a lot of religious coexistence, like we're seeing with those free cities because of, well, some of the free cities, uh, because of their roles as, as trade centers. And then another thing is something about the language of both the religions here does remind me a little bit of Sansa's storyline. To, to an extent, her siblings, but mostly Sansa's, just because she was balancing the two fades of her parents, and at first she seemed a lot closer to her mother and her mother's gods, because they, they were just close, right, uh, than her siblings. And then we see that transition to her embracing her heritage with the old gods as her story develops. That's interesting. It makes me think a little bit of Sansa in that. Uh, and it reminds me a lot of Catalan. I mean, this is this city is Catalan in the north, you know? It's uh, that mixture of the south and the north, of the hubbub of the south, of going into the city versus uh, living in the country, living in the cold north. And it reminds me so much of her with that focus on the seven, specifically in comparison to Davos, who keeps seeing all of these large statues, right? Uh, we'll, we'll see yet another statue here in a few minutes of a merman, right? And that that gives you what you've seen, all these seven statues of the big, beautiful statues, which likely remind him, of course, of Dragonstone, of those seven being burnt, and uh, of the other places he's seen them burnt as he goes. And I don't know, the, these statues that are haunting him and watching him are, are starting to change, right? Here it was a mother with her babe, then it became these giant statues watching him. Like, we're talking giant Korra level of statues, right? That If he can see them from his boat right now as he gets into the harbor, these things are pretty big. Yeah, kind of like the Titan of Bravos, but in Westeros. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well, because, you know, uh, mostly chronologically in similar times, since Feast and Dance are, you know, mishmash, uh, Arya is seeing that Titan of Bravos too. Yeah, absolutely. Another another figure, not quite a statue, is the Merman of Manderley, flying from the towers and gates and walls. Eastwatch swore Wyman would stay loyal to Winterfell, but Davos sees no direwolf hanging in the city. Promisingly, though, he doesn't see lions either. He's yet. <laughs> I mean, apparently that might not mean anything, so... <laughs> He's feeling a little more hopeful, and he begins to examine the ships in the bay. There's some drab carracks with the trading galley, Storm Dancer, the Cog's Brave Magister, and Horn of Plenty, then a Bravosi ship marked with purple hulls and sails, and the last one, the Lion Star, a warship. Ah. First of all, I bet his heart went out of his butthole <laughs> when he saw that fucking oh thing. Uh, and I mean, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful ship, though. It's black and gold adorned with a lion figurehead with a raised paw and he doesn't feel confident. He reads the lettering on the ship, which very nice touch that he can read these really well now. He eyes Tom and Baratheon's arms fluttering from the stern. 
And he's like, wow, I wish I couldn't read this. Ha ha. Uh, and these stood out like crazy to me. So to go back to a couple of these cogs, these ships that he sees, these are likely the ships that Tycho Nestorus came with. The Bravosi halted. No lord, I, only a simple servant of the Iron Bank of Bravos. Carter Pike informs me you came to Eastwatch with three ships. A galleus, a galley, a cog. John Nine, a dance with dragons. Uh, so, a galleus, a galley, and a cog. Which, he sees a trading galley, cogs, and a bravo sea ship, the purple hold sails. So, interesting, those might be, those just might be Tycho Nestorus's rides as he got into town. I think you're right, like, it matches up too much. And, yeah. And then, like... It matches up too much, and then also, this is just a perfect entrance point, right? For their ships mm-hmm. to stop over at some point before heading north to the wall, and maybe they had to stop there because of the storms? Yeah, and I imagine they'll probably hit East Watch and then come in from there is what their thoughts were, but we know that's not 100%. Um, the other thing is they're literally ships passing in the night wall. Huh. That's literally. true. Yeah. And when we get to the eel in a little bit, there's a little more to talk about, too, that kind of gives you a nod towards it that I'll bring up. Okay. I also think it's interesting that this is, chronologically, this is before Orain fucks Cersei over and takes her ships and leaves her. Mm. Right? So, chronologically speaking, that hasn't happened yet. So, the fact that Lionstar was still free, right? Lionstar was free. These ships would have probably had to leave from the Port and King's Landing. The Freys would have had to go to the capital, join there, jump on the ship, and go north. Uh, and I'm guessing this probably would have had to leave, like, what, early feast at latest to get to where they are in dance? Early feast, yeah, probably, maybe even in storm, right? Because... Yeah, after the Red Wedding, maybe? Yeah, that would make sense as they're consolidating and, and all of that's happening. Especially because of the Bolton's looming presence in this chapter. And I mean this book. Especially this chapter, though. It it does get brought up soon, and Mm -hmm. it's something that if you blink, you'll miss it, but it says a lot. Yeah, they were already brought up, right? Because uh, Davos was talking about what the people at Eastwatch were saying about the relations between the Banderlees and the Boltons, so it makes sense. Yes. It is actually interesting when you think about the Boltons and the Manderleys, but maybe we'll talk about that more next chapter. (sighs) The phrase were in White Harbor, as as you said, and now Davos is like, shit, I'm gonna have to face them. They suck so bad. The merry <laughs> midwife docks, and the captain seeks Davos. It's Casso Mogat. He's part Sisterton, part Ibanese whaler, and asks Davos, how long are you gonna be gone? Casso says that the midwife will leave after three days. Casso is five foot tall with dyed mossy green hair and whiskers and yellow boots. I was surprised at this because A, the seed is strong, right? Mm-hmm. And B, the Ibanese look is said to be dark hair, wiry, you know, thick hair. And scientifically speaking, it's unlikely you get dark, thick, wiry hair to a mossy green without using some sort of bleach. This pisses me off every time because of like, for example, the Tairoshi. You have to have a base of blonde hair unless George wants to invent double step, double processing your hair. Like, is he going to invent this in Westeros? Because he hasn't said anything about it yet. So You can't dye your hair those colors without having it lighter than the colors, Eliana. It's not 
Yeah, le- this isn't magic. Legitimate question, like, would they not have, was there no ancient form of bleach, right, to be able to do this? You could obviously do, like, as- acids from fruits. That would be the best. A hair lightener can be made from wood ash, too, hmm. uh, and it turns into lye when you soak it in water and filter it. <sighs> but I want George to talk about it. Yeah, I I mean, he probably is known as as you were pointing out pulling shit out of his ass. Oh wait, that is never mind. Killing pulling me. pulling stuff out of his ass. You, <laughs> I was like, no, that one's too literal. Too literal. <laughs> um Yeah, and and it does suck as someone who like has considered it but like was never willing to bleach their hair. And uh, I mean, Casa's got a lot of hair. He's described as her suit. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's my new word of the day. It means hairy. That's that's all it means. And <laughs> <laughs> regarding the hair dyeing, though, it is interesting. And I'm just like on that and on that wavelength because we, again, we're going through the free cities, and we were hypothesizing during our cohort episodes if like any of the brave companions were co. Kohoric. We were like, oh, maybe these people are Tairoshi because they dye their hair, but we're seeing that might not really be an indicator because we're seeing that mm-hmm. those trends from Tairoshi are getting picked up by other places, and it's really showing that quick and, and prominent cultural exchange between these trade cities, especially, right? Kaso's adopting this Tairoshi trend in fashion, and we see Wyla Manderley does it too. Yeah, come on, Dad, all the other girls are getting hair dye from the port. Come on, come on, Gramps, come on. I feel like Wyman uh, would be supportive of it. He'd be like, that seems he, cool. He's the cool grandpa, yeah. Yeah. No, I, well, and that's the thing is, he's just like, yeah, sure, we're fitting him a trade cities a little. Uh, I don't know, it's just killing me because that George just doesn't realize that he's putting unrealistic standards on hairdressers all over <laughs> the world. Because, like, now girls are going to come in and be like, make me Tairoshi. And they're going to be like, it's going to take 12 hours to do that and fry all your hair off. I mean, what else is people doing, right? They got 12 hours to burn. Why not? Yeah, this is the time here in these here desperate times to do it. Yeah, I was just saying, they don't got the internet. They don't don't have shit. Ariane didn't even like to read the books she did have. Right? Okay. What did she do? She just masturbated the whole time. (laughs) Same. Oh, we're not talking about the pain. Well. Davos tells him that if things go well, he might be back by tomorrow. But if things don't go well, well, Casso, don't wait up. Customs men are boarding the ship as Davos leaves, but he's not their concern, right? He's as normal as it comes. He's middling height with a shrewd, weather-worn peasant's face. Grizzled beard, brown salted hair. He made sure to wear his super plain garb, right? He wore brown breeches, blue tunic, woolen mantle, wooden clasp, and salt-stained leather gloves, of course, to hide his fingers. Yeah, so this plays a little bit into what we were talking about last episode about glamours and disguises in Davos' storyline. And Davos is playing on that again here, right? He's doing the same thing by hiding his identifiable features, to become another person. And I think that there's a lot about Davos's chapters. You were talking about Arya and Bravos that go really well with her chapters in both feasts and dance, right? Same as how Arya is learning to pick up information from all the people on the streets. And, and while selling clams, Davos picks up a lot of information through the gossip of the sailors in this chapter and disguising himself as a sailor. And 
Though some nobles, as we'll see later, would argue that he's actually disguising himself as a lord in a king's hand. Davos is like, fuck you, but only in his head, which is relatable. Uh, and like Arya, Davos is able to hide in plain sight and maneuver to some extent between those different social classes, all for different goals and ends. And in that way, Davos is kind of a bit like Varys, right? He's acting as his own master of whispers here, and of course, all the disguising parts. And I'm... I'm thinking, you know, perhaps again, Davos is just a little bit like, a little bit more like Melisandre than he would like to admit. Yeah, he totally has his own little repertoire of uh, smoke and mirrors to play with. Mm-hmm. Whether, well, and that's the thing. It's very like, hashtag Catholic guilt, like he doesn't want to embrace that side of him, you know? I mean, literally, because a lot or of it, it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that difference for them is that religion. Davos is like, nah, I'm different now. Yeah. (laughs) Davos walks along the wharf, going through the fish market and watching the brave magister load casks of mead. Beyond that, sailors are throwing dice and fishwives cry the day's catch. He hears a boy beating time on a drum for a ring of river runners and sees spearmen guarding seal gate, but rather poorly, busy flirting with a sex worker on the dock. The language here is fun. The gate was open, the porticolis raised. Ah, uh, a euphemism for not only sex and flirting, but also that this guy sucks at his job. <laughs> oh, yes. True. I wonder if that's going to be important later. Maybe not. Maybe it's just about sex. <laughs> I know it's a, a, a fish, or a fish. I know it's a show moment, but how Arya enters Winterfell in the show, uh, that one moment, very interesting, hmm. like how she dupes the guards it reminds me kind of of that if maybe there will be another moment with guards here yeah yeah someday not now (laughs) hopefully who knows if we're ever gonna come back here is what i'm saying but i hope so white harbor's interesting i hope so too i really love all the statues and we do get another statue here right yes we do it's a stone merman fountain spitting water at the center. It's green bearded and white with lichen with a broken trident. It's old fishfoot. I just, I love that name. It tickles me. <laughs> oh, you know, old fishfoot. Ah, good old fishfoot. Gone too it's so soon. Cute. Oh my god. Yes. The yard is busy with people. Like, some of them are actually just washing their clothes in that fountain and drawing it on old fishfoot. There's also like a hedge wizard here and an herb woman and a bad juggler. And again, talking about trade cities and other POVs. This does remind me a little bit to Daenerys and Quaithe watching the fire mage in Karth. Not not very heavily, but I'm just like, oh yes, people in places. Yeah. The hedge wizard. Herb woman. I didn't think about hedge wizards and the herb woman. And the yeah, juggling. That's really neat. Entertainment. Yeah, it's, it's definitely adopting all of the uh, excitement of the free mm-hmm. cities here. This is much different than King's Landing, which is still busy and has children and women and men running around and definitely sailors and stuff. But it it doesn't have this freeing feeling. It doesn't feel as open and carefree. Yeah, and we're going to lose that that sense in a little bit, right? Because, yes, there are people selling food and children running around. A little bit of that innocence. But something is different in White Harbor today. The oak and iron doors. Felt that was significant for you. Um, Of old mint are open today, and inside there are many people huddled. They're all displaced from the war and are afraid of the Boltons. We have a line of 
They came here for refuge to a city untouched by the fighting, and here I turn up to drag them back into the war. So Davos is feeling guilty about this, and also about the apple that he's eating as he sees their hunger. I found this really interesting on reread. This is the mint, uh, I'm guessing, right? We suppose that Rob's coin would have come from because because Wyman had promised it back then, saying Mm. King Rob needs his own coinage as well, and White Harbor is the place to mint it. And then Davos, of course, here learns about the mint, and what he sees is a difference, right? He's told them as have no other place to live, small folk from up the white knife, most of them, Hornwood's people, too, with that bastard of Bolton running loose. They all want to be inside the walls. I don't know what his lordship means to do with all of them. Most turned up and no more in the rags on their backs. White Harbor has become a sanctuary city. Uh, this is a really interesting clue for us, too, that he's saying Hornwood's people, which are not too far from here, obviously. It's not like it's a long run down the way. It's not like they're trying to get to Winterfell from where the Hornwood lands are. But Hornwood's people... And people up the White Knife are all coming down here because the Bastard of Bolton is a threat. And what's crazier is Wyman Manderley is housing all of these people. Uh, So his actions are a big clue to us that his allegiance to the current regime in the North is probably not true, right? Like, if they have their doors open for people from other lands that the Boltons control, they probably don't support the Boltons' actions deep down. And they probably are looking for another king. I was going to just say that's a great point about that subtext because you called out the Hornwoods. And as we know, they suffered, Lady Danella suffered under the Boltons and Wyman once tried to wed her. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so letting these people into the city and protecting them. But what are you protecting them from? I thought you liked your boss, Wyman. <laughs> Wait a second. There's a parallel. What are you protecting them from, Davos? I thought oh, you liked your boss. Uh, there's your parallel. It's... Anyways, not going to say it. So Davos is also feeling really guilty about eating and about the war. And it kind of feels connected here. It's not just here because later on someone dies for him in the Wolf Den dungeons, right? For him to undertake another blood money mission. And this feels prominent right here. This mission feels like it's just full of sadness and guilt. It does. It really does. Almost like Davos is guilted into some of this. And, you know, in ter- yeah, in terms of <laughs> that guilt, right? That's something that actually is quite a running theme in Davos's story now that I think about it. And and part of his, part of his emotions. And in regards to that, there's something that reminds me of another chapter where Davos feels a bit of guilt. Uh, where he's at Storm's End, again, with that shadow baby. And... It's interesting because that's right as like the war is kind of beginning. It, it started a little, but like Stannis wasn't fully like a player in it yet. And now here we're in the thick of it of the war, and Davos has even lost loved ones to the war. And just as Davos returned to Storm's End, it, it's a place that has a lot of significance from his previous life and is a turning point. He was familiar with it, and he's coming back to another place that he's really familiar with, White Harbor. He's been here many times, and he's also coming back with this place changed and himself, just like at Storm's End. And there's a line with the apple seller wondering what Manderly means to do with all these displaced people. And I do kind of wonder that. Uh, what is what he wants to happen and many of these people also likely just want the fighting to stop and to return home some of course hope that maybe they'll just take up work here and start a new life because their previous ones were uprooted they don't know if they'll be able to rebuild the places that they came from 
Yeah, absolutely. And again, like new mm. castle and the idea of just like this new hope of landing in White Harbor. White Harbor is the new money of the North, right? Like it's the new kid at the table. Yes, like you said, we've been here for a been thousand here for a long years. Ass time. <laughs> but I know. But like at the same time, they are the newest of the system and they provide at the same exact time as that, like the most economic right. innovation. Uh, and the fact that they're open arms to these people and they accept people, I think that says a lot about White Harbor. I think White Harbor is a really cool place. I'm kind of yeah, into White Harbor. Yeah, White Harbor stands now. <laughs> well, <laughs> Sorry, Salador. One stand Salador per episode. I would, would like I'm White Harbor, too. He probably does. He was probably, like, super jazzed to go to White Harbor and then, you know, shit happened. He probably has, like, three wives in White Harbor, That's true. Eliana. And, like, eight kids. Probably. He's like, well, those kids aren't getting a visit from dad's day. <sighs> On a different note. Well, sad, because that's not the only sad thing about kids going on here. Right? Uh, obviously, this is not... This city might seem hopeful, and yes, we were all just like, we stand White Harbor. But there are still some sad bits, right? There's uh, kids, people begging on the street for food. Some of these small folk. Girls take up sex work. Potentially they get trafficked. And boys who are five feet tall try to find work in the Lord's barracks, right? They try to sign up with the army. So total tip-off of what Manderley's doing here. Yeah. I, yes. White Harbor, of course, has its bad parts. Um, you know, they're they're trying to provide, as you said, like a be a sanctuary city. Not just a White Harbor, but a safe harbor for these people. But... They can't promise that, right? This is a time of huge upheaval in Westeros, and we use the word trafficked here. Intentionally, it's not what's used in the text in regards to what the girls are doing, because I do want to draw that distinction and talk about the impact, like the very gendered impact that this war has had, uh, and in exacerbating gender inequality in Westeros, because there are, of course, sex workers who choose to enter this trade. They have agency in it. Women like Jataya or the Black Pearl, especially right in Bravos, right? Because it's there's a lot of freedom afforded to people there. And that's that's a huge part of what they're built on. And I don't want to take away any of the agency of the women and girls that do take up sex work in this passage, in real life, in the rest of the book. But the language here does say girls and boys, not women and men. And I know that George is a little flimsy with that, right? As we see with some of the Corbray stuff in the veil. But here it does feel pointed because they're talking about them boys being a certain height. So it does feel like it's referring to children. And the toll and violence that this war is taking on the bodies of those children. Because, again, it's one thing to choose sex work in the conditions of any of your work for yourself. It's another to be a child left vulnerable by losing your home to the war, not having a source of food, losing the loved ones who would protect you because they died or in the displacement they got lost. You're lost yourself too, and it's all taken from you, and in desperation, you turn to selling your body. And for girls, especially, who are young, who might not have an education or any other form of livelihood, or that leaves them especially very vulnerable to kidnapping, to slavery, and other forms of sexual and gender-based violence without any of those systems of support. And this is true for the boys as well, right? And and what's happening to their bodies, because if they're large enough, right, they aren't escaping the war. They're re-entering the war. They're being put into danger again uh, with all they have to offer, which is their bodies for fighting. And 
It, it, it pairs well with some of the ways that Feast and Dance is now exploring the aftermath of the War of the Five Kings, and maybe I'll feel different about this when we get to Brienne's chapters and I refresh my memory, but it kind of makes me wish there were a stronger line written between Davos' chapters and Brienne's, because there there are things that go well between them and, and that connection, that causal connection of the systemic impact of this war on Westeros. Yeah, really well said. You don't have anyone waiting for you, or you don't have anyone who's looking for you. That's that's who's always focused on, right? Like, that's where the predatory behavior is always aimed first, because it's uh-huh. the easiest catch. And for a lot of these children that made this big trip down the White Knife, maybe their parents have found some work, or they're trying to find work, or they're dead, Yeah, right, from traversing south. I mean, it is winter. Stannis, not so long from this chapter, will be under a bajillion feet of snow. Lake effect gonna get you someday at the bite. Yep, absolutely. Chloe and her lake effects. <sighs> Listen, we what we need to do is we need to work on low-income housing in White Harbor for these kids, okay, Eliana? And I want to meet with you every Thursday until we make it happen. I think it, it could happen. You know, they could do it, but... Under Queen Sansa. <laughs> is it a... Yeah. It... Sansa Stark is gonna bring Section 8 housing to White... Oh, no, just kidding. I mean... Maybe maybe that, maybe not, but like the things that you were saying about Reform the mint, it. right? It feels yeah. like White Harbor has a lot there that, that can be developed and that needs to be that yes. not needs to be. But that can definitely come back as we readdress what it means to rebuild after a war and actually get stability. Definitely feels purposeful. Well, Davos asks about Lord Manderley's plans. And he gets very little back other than gossip about, well, Lord Manderley's granddaughter and daughter that they're set to wed phrase. Davos is eating his apple, and he feels like it's kind of a gross apple, right? But he thinks it's worth the money because he got good information out of the seller. Yeah, and the seller's like, give me back that apple if you're not going to eat it. The seeds are also still good. And it, it reminds me a little bit about... What is the value of like an onion? If is it still good? Is it still bad? And you know how Chloe and I feel about the onion, because we are not wasting food here. <laughs> well, and more than that, it's also very much referenced how much money it cost him. Mm-hmm. I think it was a half penny, right, or uh, something that yeah. it cost him to buy that apple. So he literally considers what it was worth to him and that the money was worth it to him and that the person that he gave it to, it, it was better to just give that guy the money. And get a little tiny piece of info out of him. Absolutely. Even if the apple sucked. Yeah, Davos has a lot of empathy, I think, for what's going on here. Right? Yes. (laughs) Trigger some thought in him. As Davos walks across the yard, he remembers places in the city, like a brew house with beer so good it sold for as much as Arbor Gold. But he's seeking wine, landing at the Lazy Eel. The food was bad there, and so was the company, but there were no guards. Some things never change. Inside the eel, time stood still. I just love that line. I think it's a it's a beautiful line. There's a lot of beautiful lines in this chapter, and I don't know if it's just me overthinking it, if the eel stuff and the name in this place is meant to be a nod for, like, rereaders about the lamprey pie and, like, free pie stuff. Because, like... At the same time, lampreys aren't technically eels, but they kind of look like eels, and people sometimes call them eels, so, like, they're basically fucking eels. Yeah. I don't know. It might just be, like, a fun name that George thought up. 
Because it is fun. Right. I don't know. Or it's about dicks. It's probably about that lazy eel. (laughs) Actually, it probably literally is now that I say it aloud. Now that you say it, I didn't really think about it. I wasn't really thinking about penis right now, but thanks, Eliana. That's what it is. I'm now convinced it's probably actually canon. Well, besides four sex workers, a proprietor, Davos has the lazy eel all to himself. Mm, Amazing. (laughs) As he drinks and waits, he stares at the hearth, thinking of Melisandre. The red woman could see the future in the fire, but all that Davos Seaworth ever saw were the shadows of the past. The burning ships, the fiery chain, the green shadows flashing across the belly of the clouds, the red keep brooding over all. Davos was a simple man, raised up by chance and war and Stannis. He did not understand why the gods would take four lads as young and strong as his sons, yet spare their weary father. Some nights he thought he had been left to rescue Edric Storm. But by now, King Robert's bastard boy was safe in the Stepstones, yet Davos still remained. Do the gods have some other task for me? He wondered. If so, White Harbor may be some part of it. Mm. This is interesting because it does harken back to a lot of Tyrion, uh, especially, actually, in dance. He has a lot of that, like, why am I still alive, bro? Mentality going on, and in Clash of, you know, well... I got this far, something must be okay with me. The gods must give a shit about me if they exist. Uh, And not just that, but it also is kind of one of the passages that really brings home for me that Davos is probably going to have to allege himself to the north in some sort of way. I know some people might think Davos in the north in the show was an invention, uh, but I think he has to join a good real cause. You know, one that's not fake light, one that's not false light. Davos wants a boss that respects him, and he wants to join a business that has a vision for its future, it seems. Yeah, and, you know, in regards to him being like, how did I end up here? There must be some sort of plan. I mean, Skagos is pretty fucking out of the way. Like, how can you not think, like, there must be a reason for me being here, right? I know a way that he got to Skagos. It's because he got in the fucking boat and then he went. You know what you could do instead? You could take that same boat and you could turn it around and you could go south. Uh, and at least he's thinking about that right now. He's like, what am I doing here? This is the f- one of the first times that a lot of what he's seeing at White Harbor, he's like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? As he thinks of like other people's ventures. But something in this passage and the other passages in this chapter remind me of something that you were saying, too, of Devin potentially being used against Davos really brings that kind of to the forefront. And that's something that other POVs in this story are exploring. Yeah, that's a great thought. Lots it's of your thought. situations for the children. It's your thought. Well, Clark. yeah, but you're repurposing it. It's better when you say no, it. I don't think so. What's better for Davos, though, is the eel. It's filling up as the sun sets. He's offered food that seems unappetizing. And I, I'm thinking he's just like, I want to go back to Sisterton. <laughs> Bring me back there with a the good stew. And he's sitting in the shadows to listen to the gossip which again are, are gonna be very important a lot of it confirms what he heard from godric or people at the belly of the whale tywin's dead liza's dead balin's dead there's power grabs in the veil between littlefinger and bronze Jan royce fighting for the sea stone chair i'm sorry i meant salt throne the oh salt throne <laughs> sandra clegane's turned outlaw and plundering and uh, allegedly and of course uh the three daughters of Essos are at war, and there's a slave revolt in the east. 
couple thoughts here. Does any of this sound important? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Sandor Clegane turned outlaw and plundering is not true. We know that is not Sandor. It's fake news. I would just like to say I would like to stand up for my mans and say that is fake news. Sandor, baby, I love you. You're doing amazing. Only done several things wrong in your entire life. Uh... The three daughters at war? You think that means anything? Uh, I don't know. Maybe people should listen to our Free Cities episodes to find out. Oh my god. And well, well, what about the things that are new here, though, also are, are, are interesting to me, because he the stuff that he learns, he knew. Right? And um, we're talking the power grabs and the veil, and Tywin Liza Balin. He, he kind of knew all that. The the Robert Glover stuff, that's new. He's heard that Glover's in the city trying to raise men and, and kind of failing, and allegedly Manderly doesn't give a fuck about whatever Glover's doing. White Harper is allegedly tired of fighting. Emphasis again on allegedly. There's a lot of allegedly's here. This is gossip, okay? Riswells and Dustin's have burned some ironborn longships, and Ramsey is riding south with Hother Umber to attack Moat Kaelin with a host of 300 spearmen, 100 archers, some Horwood. Some Hornwoods and Kerwins, too. And I just have to wonder if Ramsay, does Ramsay have 20 good men? The men talk about Manderly being bound to send Roos Bolton, now the warden. Some people say uh, Roos has no honor. What? And they doubt Manderly's ability to take action. Between his weight and potential illness and the sleeping and the crying, I take offense at this line. I'm feeling very attacked that people would doubt someone's ability to take action between their weight and potential illness and all the sleeping and crying, first of all. It's all very rude. <sighs> it's not nice, and I feel attacked. Um, But they do say, after all, the lion's got his son. No one spoke of King Stannis. No one even seemed to know his grace had come north to help defend the wall. Wildlings and whites and giants had been all the talk at Eastwatch, but here... No one seemed to be giving them so much as a thought. So in this quote, there's a lot that's going on, including, of course, how the South has no idea about the real threat, blah, blah, blah. We all know that, right? And I'm also just, I'm telling y'all, like, Stannis has bad PR. If people don't even know what their king has done, that's good to protect them. Like, if they never even think about him at all, like, how are they going to know that they should throw their support behind him? And obviously the Manderleys are, are more up to date on things, but... This is pretty shitty, but studies do show that in presidential elections, or elections in general, right, one of the most important parts of electability is literally just the popularity of the candidate and if people can recognize their name easily. I mean, hopefully this changes, but it makes me think of that. As he's saying this, this is all the talk at Eastwatch is the things happening in the North, but no one talks about the North. In the mm-hmm. harbor, no one says a single thing about the battle at the wall or the free folk. Davos is like, no one's even talking about them. At, like, not even on a Stannis level. Like, even the wall. Nothing. I mean, no one gives a shit about the wall, it seems. They're just like, that's all the way over there. And it's so far. No <laughs> one cares. They're like, that's just where we send people and we don't like them. I'm like, oh, okay. We're... That, that's, that's literally how people think of the wall. It is, but you shouldn't say it. Shit. <laughs> That's where we send the people we don't like. That's how they think of it. I know. I know. Davos decides to join in on all this banter, trying to pry some more info out, saying, I thought the phrase killed Manderly's son. They're like, yes, that was Wendell. Sir Willis is still captive. 
Davos empathizes. He thinks of his own sons, dead and alive, and what it would mean for one of them to be a hostage. Oh, there you go with that hostage thought again. That's the thing that made me think of Stephen, your thing. Specifically, I'm like, one of your sons is a hostage. He know he kinda knows it. Like in this in this passage, he's like, interesting, and then he's like, push down the bad thoughts. <laughs> Stefan and Stannis were thousands of leagues from the fighting, and safe from harm, but Devon was at Castle Black, the squire to the king, the king whose cause may rise or fall with White Harbor. You know, we were discussing the other day, like, imagine having to go home from all of this after Stannis is the way he is, and you have to tell your son why he's named after Stannis Baratheon. It's straight up Harry Potter shit, you know? Like, listen, Stannis Baratheon, you were named after one of the lamest endings for King. <laughs> Maybe he, oh. can, he can change his name. People change their names all the fucking time. He could be Stanley. Well, that's the thing. He's like only two, right? I mean, if this was the free folk, they wouldn't have even given him a name yet. That was your problem, Davos. You shouldn't have named them for two years. And maybe that was smart, honestly. <laughs> That was the play. <laughs> it would stop a lot of apples, you know, and like whatever other names people are naming their children. I don't know. I like Luna. That's one of Chrissy yeah, Teigen's, but I'm just partial because of Sailor Moon. They switch the subject now to dragons and they gossip about Viserys' death at Drogo's hand, but no one actually knows like Viserys' name or Drogo's name or any of the details because again, it's gossip. And then one man jokes that if a king wanted him dead, he'd just pretend to be a corpse and uses that to imply that like Viserys might still be alive. And then they joke that, oh, well, we never saw Joffrey or Robert's corpses, so they must be alive too. And I'm like, what? George, you're, ma you're saying something here, aren't you? Then it turns to talk about Rhaegar's son, who's also supposedly killed. Okay, there's a point here. Um, kind of. It's complicated and nuanced. Supposedly killed, and the two princesses whose names are, like, all a little foggy on also. They're like, there's Rhaegar's daughter, and there's Rhaegar's sister. And then they confuse them with Baylor the Blessed Sisters, and they're like, oh yeah, her name is Dana. Dana, right? And eventually we'll get to yeah. Reyna and Elena, but a little bit touched on with the Maiden Vault, but they discuss that wedding. Dana, whose name they got wrong, right? Had, they, had she wed a king, that would have made her a queen then. And they're like, it couldn't have been Dana, who's locked up. She was a princess. They're like, did they wed or not? Anyways. They're drunk. They continue to guess at Daenerys' name until Davos decides to rejoin the conversation. And he's like, it's it's Daenerys. Uh, because now he has to know politics. Um, Davos is like, listen, I didn't watch Bridgerton, but I feel like I'd be into it, you guys. Let's keep talking about it. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, lucky for him, the next book, I'm sorry, the next chapter, but also the next book of this is actually a Daenerys chapter. Yeah. <laughs> the whole next book pretty much is a Danny chapter. I mean, kind of. Oh. This book is a Danny book. It is. It's a very Danny heavy book. And the first time I read it, I didn't know what to think of it. And the second time I read it, it was like, okay, I like it now. And it's really clever having the Danny chapter right after this. It ties uh -huh. it together well brings in all of this stuff we're reading about the free cities and all of this different information about trade and economics in the harbor. Uh, it's very clever. There's a lot going on here with this little talk he's listening in on. I joke that it's like, you know, Bridgerton. We've got some soap operas going on. We've got a novella or two going on here. Several brain moments here. My brain's going through different phases. So the smallest brain of my brain exploding 
uh, Targ foreshadowing, right? We have Tyrion uh-huh. for Aegon reveal, Aegon's plot, dead people running around from the rebellion, right? So that exact line about, oh, you know, people being dead, and if the king wanted them to be dead, well, then they'd be dead. Uh, you have Lem Lemoncloak running around. You have John Connington. Interesting, uh-huh. right? Interesting to have that. And even recently, we had in Sam Fora Feast for Crows, which is chronologically actually a little after this, uh, Eamon and him talk, and Eamon says, no one ever looked for a girl. It was a prince that was promised, not a princess. That is interesting. So I feel like those themes are tied really well together with George introducing the concept and the kind of tease of like, oh, what if we had fake people show up that were supposed to be dead, but they weren't? And that's a great call out because they keep arguing like, is she a princess or a queen in this? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I didn't think about that in context. To, it was a prince, not a princess. Well, get ready. The big brain doesn't stop there, Eliana. It's growing. I'm give you the next version. Here it goes. It's growing. I'm just seeing like lightning emanating off my big, huge brain. Uh, so slightly larger brain. This is foreshadowing also of what Davos literally experiences, right? Like what King's Landing hears of him. Mm-hmm. If some king wants me dead, I'll pretend to be dead. Well, no, but Queen Cersei wants you dead. And so Wyman Manderley's going to hook it up. You're dead, kid. You're dead, Davos. That's actually really well structured that all this is going on. Yeah, and and it's not just that, right? Like, there, there's... The next thing that I didn't really put together until reading this is... This is kind of Stannis foreshadowing in the pink letter later, right? As far as kings pretending to be dead. Uh, in the letter that Ramsay sends, the bastard letter... Your false king is dead. He and all his host were smashed in seven days of battle. I have his magic sword. Tell his red whore. Uh, that compared to, and this is, I guess, a very small thing in Theon, The Winds of Winter 1. If you haven't read that chapter, I'm sorry. Plug your ears for 12 seconds. It may be that we shall lose this battle, the king said grimly. In Bravos, you may hear that I am dead. It may even be true. You shall find my sellswords, nonetheless. Mm. Uh... Comparing these two, it totally makes me think about Stannis alive, right? I I don't think the pink letter is real. I think there has to be some sort of, I mean, it's real. It's physically in Winterfell, uh, or I mean, in the wall, physically at the wall. But I just don't think that it's legitimate, obviously. Maybe Mance is dead. That wouldn't surprise me. Sorry, Mance. Kind of had a short leash there, but I don't know. I changed my mind about the pink letter. I used to have one opinion on it, and then I started changing my mind after I did an episode on it for Mr. Monthly. I've changed my opinion a few times. I mean, I don't think meadow-wise, it doesn't really matter who wrote it at this point. I just think that its contents aren't true, uh, and he's going to die anyways eventually, so it's like, to me, I'm not too worried about it. Yeah, just get a spinner, spin it, something. (laughs) That's probably how I feel that day. Yeah, just pick one. Yeah, exactly. It could change any day. I'm not married to it. The last thing that this reminded me of foreshadowing wise is it could be groundwork for Rickon's fate. Mm. Uh, We're going to divulge into a lot of theorizing on what's to come in Skagos for Davos and Rickon in the future. And I have some major expansive thoughts that I will go into as we go on. But I am on the record stating 
he's going to come back without Rickon because here he is seeing once more all of these kids suffer through wartime and he knows that this is a blood money adventure that he's going to get Rickon. And if he brings Rickon back, he's not going to survive well in this game the lords are playing. It's it's the inverse of Edric Storm, right? It's leaving him to save him instead of sending him away to save him. Yeah, leave. Uh, and I think this works too. You know, if he comes back and says, never found him, he's probably dead. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We've seen a, a couple of people disappear like that. And I mean, it, it, it's interesting leaving him with the little cannibals who are probably going to be pretty nice. Versus allowing the nobles to cannibalize them towards their own ends. Yeah. So, I'm rethinking this now that I've listened to what you've said. But I'm going to share what I thought anyway. Um, <laughs> trying to tie it into it. And this entire exchange of like, about who's dead, who's not, and what you were saying... What if Davos does end up being like, wait, what if following Stannis to the ends of the earth was actually a bad idea? Because he's starting to wonder that now. And some of what you were saying, right, Davos does end up kind of getting a bit of an outright Cersei is one, mm-hmm. one royal who wants Davos dead. And it makes me think, coming back to what you're talking about with Fagon and and his crew and John Connington, that line of if one hand can die, why not a second? And I'm like, or even a third, right? John Connington faked his own death to join Aegon's cause, and Davos kind of again has an out here right now and is a theoretically, allegedly dead hand of another king. And besides Cersei, what if he also does it to kind of ghost Stannis? right? Because besides, like, a corpse easily being able to fake this hip, be faked to be him if you cut off some of the fingers, right? There's a lot mm-hmm. of that. what we're seeing here of Davos' identity being slippery in these last two books that could be uh, more foreshadowing or set up for that. Of course, Melisandre's lines about the finger bones and, and the mannerly swearing that his head is atop the walls and the phrase agreeing. Um, and Davos pretending to be someone else and easily able to get lost in a crowd if he just wears a glove, like how John Connington was able to pretend to be someone else by dying and covering up his very identifiable hair. I mean, all he has to do is hide his hand for a while and he can become no one. I mean, he's obviously doing it now for Cersei, but yeah. Right, obviously for Cersei. And it brings to mind Tyrion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dwarf's head being sent for Tyrion that obviously isn't Tyrion, and Tyrion knowing people are dying for him to be thrown off the scent. Uh, obviously, Tyrion can metabolize that and deal with that. And when I say metabolize, I really mean compartmentalize it and put it back under his skin so he could just be cynical his whole life. Uh, but Davos, I don't think Davos can take a lot more, is my whole thought mm-hmm. process here after seeing this. Like, this is a lot. It's a lot for anyone. And in the winds of winter, I think Davos might get broken from all of it. Uh, it might he might be the type of person that's compelled to do something about being broken, right? But he he might say enough's enough at some point here, because I don't know. I couldn't live with that much guilt of people just dying like crazy for me. Yeah, and that's a lot of what we're seeing in these chapters, right? Davos dealing with the guilt of what he's done, and he's like, "Is this worse than when I was a smuggler?" Are some of these things worse? Yeah. 
Yeah. That started in Clash. You know, intelligent people are rarely happy. That's what I have to tell you, Davos. Sorry. <laughs> he could have been happy. There was a smart move to make that could where he could have been happy. And, well, again, someone does know what happened to Daenerys. In Pentos, one of the sailors heard from a traitor on the slow-eyed maid, eh? who recalls the story of a young girl that was seeking passage for herself and her three dragons, but that guy decided that spices were actually way more profitable and less of a fire risk than having three dragons on your ship. But Davos doesn't join in their laughter because he, he actually knows what happened to the slow-eyed maid from last chapter, uh, because Godric is, of course, enjoying that ship's spices now. And then he has this line where he thinks, The gods were cruel to let a man sail across half the world, then send him chasing a false light when he was almost home. Hmm. Hmm. What does it mean? What does false light mean, hmm. Eliana? What does it mean? I'm worried it means that, like, Davos never gets to return home, too. I know I hate that, and I know that there's a lot of, uh, you know, like, Odyssey vibes about it people have mentioned, as we've talked about, too. <sighs> I don't know. Especially if he becomes no I think one. He will. Now that I well, think about it, because that was what Odysseus did for a bit. He said his name was nobody until he was like, fuck it, I'm Odysseus, bitches! I'm like, no! I just don't think it can go the same. I think of all people, Davos is safe, and I think he will go home to his two kids and wife. Devin's gonna die, though. Rip. <laughs> Sorry, kid. You're dead. Something in this, right here in this conversation, the man who talks about the dragons is a bravosi oarman in a somber woolen jacket. So, this is interesting because in Arya's chapters... We learn Bravosi commoners and workers wear bright colors, right? The normal outfits are flamboyant, bright, and this feels like another tip-off to the three ships being part of Tycho Nestoris' mm. crew. They're wearing more muted colors, which are supposed to be reserved for upper class in Bravos. Being a banker is probably, like, of the Iron Bank is probably one of the best fucking jobs you can have in Bravos. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Another interesting thing that happens in this exchange is Davos admires the slow-eyed maid's captain for taking a risk uh, to get those riches and thinks that as a young man, he had also dreamed of doing the same and just kept putting off all of these dreams that he has. He has another one of those dreams for himself. One day when the war is done, King Stannis sits the Iron Throne and has no more need of Onion Knights. I'll take Devon with me. Steph and Stanny, too, if they're old enough, will see these dragons and all the wonders of the world. Hmm. hmm. That feels significant. Well, you sure ain't gonna be taking Devin with you. Yeah, I don't know. I'm worried about Davos. Dream big! Dream big. You start to get really worried about this kid, I'm you know? I'm worried about- I, there's a lot of kids I worry about. Davos does, too. That's why he was like, I gotta take care of this Edric boy. <laughs> As he leaves, Davos thinks it's cold. Then he remembers how cold it was at Eastwatch. He considers trying to get more info out of these guys, but he's like, nah, that's enough. I came too late. Oh, haha. I just came too late. <laughs> Once again, he reaches for his finger bones and he, he weighs his options. Go to Newcastle? Go home? Go to Stannis? He recalls the Eastwatch feast from Selyse the night before they set sail. 
Axel told them a story of a Targaryen prince who kept an ape as a pet and dressed it up. Then he makes a jab about Davos as, you know, playing dress up. Davos is offended, but he says nothing, thinking he's better than Axel, I get off by burning people, Florent. That's literally Axel Florent. And so it's interesting that Davos remembers this memory as he's blending in amongst the sailors and a lot of other things that are going on in this chapter as he again revisits a place he's been before. And there are, we've been trying to parse this out throughout Davos' storyline. What is motivating Davos to stay with Stannis? Like, he's not that cool. He's gonna burn his daughter. But I do love that this chapter, again, is one of the first times that makes the question of why is Davos supporting Stannis explicit? Because he himself is now wondering, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing here. And he's actually of clear mind, unlike the time that he was kind of delirious on a rock after the Blackwater. (laughs) And he's like, I have another life I could be living. And he's really taking that question seriously and starts to be like, am I being foolish? And I think that there's a lot. There's a lot of reasons that Davos is here. He's really conflicted, I think. And of course, part of it, as he said and pointed out, is for his children's future and their their security, perhaps, which apparently that might not be going as well as he had planned. Um, Part of it is, of course, for Stannis. I think there's a part of Davos that really loves Stannis. And part of it is, of course, for the good that Davos believes that Stannis can, that he himself can do for the realm, and that perhaps he does believe Stannis is good for the realm and is part of that. And then I think that as we see here with Davos remembering this exchange with Axel, maybe there is a small part of Davos that he's not willing to really admit to himself yet, but a part of him that wants to prove something to these uptight nobles. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the children's future, that's that's the loudest thing. And he thinks, you know, if he loses, if he takes one false step, he's dead, right? He loses mm-hmm. it all. He loses everything for his family, everything he's built up. It's like political Jenga. It is. And he's doing okay. He's doing pretty well. He's made some risky yeah. pulls, but... He's trying to save up that 401k, though, man, for his family, you know? He really is, and it's like... It's... For retiring in 10 years. You're not going to make enough interest, Davos. That's for sure. Not these fucking interest levels, just as Tycho's. <sighs> well, by process of elimination, the story about the Targaryen ape, uh, a lot of people have speculated about it, and it, 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 this is it. This is the one reference. It could have been a pre-Valeria, like pre-Westeros Valyria thing going on. It could have been before but I don't know, the fact that Axel knows it makes me think it would have had to be like in his lifetime. I did see a lot of really good references that it could be Aegon, Balin and Alyssa's son, or possibly Arian's son, Magor, mm. due to the timeline and that Axel like would have known him. So, interesting. I, I, I did think that, you know, not too long ago, Tyrion was dressed up, or Tyrion is being dressed up by as a demon monkey by Illyrio, right? Like, that's literally what he calls himself because mm. he's wearing that, like, jester's outfit. And I think that's kind of an interesting reference here when we consider Tyrion's capabilities and limitations as hand being compared to Davos and being dressed up or dressed down for the position they're going to right now. That's a great point, yeah. And Tyrion is also someone else who's slipping between classes right now. Mm-hmm. Davos stares up at Old Fishfoot. Bless that statue. <laughs> and I don't know, I'm really obsessed with the statue. Resolves to go through with what he came here to do. He's inspired to prove that he is no ape in velvet, but a king's hand. And he heads up Castle Stair, which is a street 
going towards Newcastle, the seat of House Manderley. And then at the top, he looks down at the harbors to survey the war preparations, which are 23 war galleys in Inner Harbor, realizing that Wyman's been busy. And so we didn't quote the whole thing here, but I love the language in this ending with Davos finding his resolve. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to read the one line. When he reached the top, he turned to look behind him. And I just feel like that line is so loaded in the context of this chapter because now we're seeing that Davos isn't ashamed of being a smuggler. Now that he hasn't been with like these shitty ass nobles for a bit, he's like they suck. I'm awesome. And he's embracing the skills that being a smuggler has given him. It's given him survival to get to Sisterton. He's he's smart and knows how to deal with people because many times his life was at risk in, in shady situations where he had to do that. He knows where to go to get information. And then that, again, he's at the top of the hill, right? That's literally what the line means, if you look at it in a literal sense. And he looks back at the city and he's reviewing all these old haunts from his sailing days and revisiting those memories of Roro and Sala. But also beyond that, another meaning of this line is he's at the top of the ladder. He's the king's hand. He's reached the top and he's looking back on his roots and his family and where he's come from. And as it all comes together, he looks at the sea, right, in the harbor where it's brought him. And using his knowledge from his sailing and smuggling days to pinpoint Manderley's ships. It's interesting. He's reached the top and it makes me think that he hasn't figured it out or admitted it yet, but he's done kind of the most good he can do for Stannis. Mm. You know, I think that's another thing. Like, Interesting. He's reached the top, but there's no ceiling. Davos doesn't keep going from being a king's hand, right? Like, uh, The only way he can rise now is inward and doing what he thinks is the right thing. That's a great point. Like, just and and we see that with a lot of other nobles, right? They rise to become king's hand, but they were so morally bankrupt. Like Axel yeah, inspired to it. Otto or Axel, yeah, yeah. Otto Hightower, Axel Florent. Like they, what are they trying to get? Like you can't go any higher. You're never going to be a king, Axel Florent. Not with that nose hair. But they hope that they can be the hand who has the true power and use the king as a puppet and. Wrinkle all the money out of him. Yeah, Axel might try to step into that and be like, Davos is dead, can't you tell? And yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm your hand now. Wow, that would be a betrayal. <sighs> that would be a betrayal. And not only for Stannis against Davos, but to himself. And I mean, Davos is going to have thoughts about that. He obviously doesn't like Axel. He's he's kind of stabbed Axel in the back, but he really should have, because Axel was all like, do this thing for me. Tell him I should be hand. And Davos is like, I don't think so. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like you. If anything, yeah. If anything, he feels worse for Alicane. Or and that's part of why Axel's probably making those jabs, right, and insults at Davos here. Not yeah. only is he does he think Davos is unworthy, he's very jealous. And, like, I yeah. love that for Davos. Back to these fleet of 23 ships. Wow. Wyman is really out here with his no prisoners attitude, right? Uh -huh. He's like, take no motherfuckers alive. This is dead or alive mentality. Uh, it reminds me of Arya too in A Feast for Crows, when she, of course, tells us the tale she heard from old man of men in a long winter who'd lived beyond their years going out into the world mm. to go hunting. Absolutely. And their daughters would weep and their sons turn their faces to the fire, but no one would stop them or ask what game they meant to hunt, with the snow so deep and the cold wind howling. 
And then, of course, Arya wonders what the old Bravosi told their sons and daughters before they set off for the House of Black and White. So obviously, Arya is very connected to the North, being a Northern girl. Uh, and also, right now, yes, she's Northern, but Jane is her while she's in Bravos. That's okay. The Northmen are going to fight for her anyway. It's an idea. But here... It's not okay for Jane. Arya's, it's not okay for Jane, but God bless her soul. Ugh. Uh, here, Arya speaks to the very brevity of kind of how we meet Wyman later, right? The, the lengths Wyman's willing to go to to give freedom to his family and loved ones, the ones he has left. This is kind of the very brevity of who Davos is in what he believes in, what he fights for, against oppression and for truth and light and onions for all, especially the little guys. Connecting the Bravosi men who come to end their lives in the House of Black and White, a place that's very doors are made of weirwood, mm. if you remember, of the obsidian and weirwood, here to the mint, which has an oak and iron door, as you so graciously highlighted earlier. Shout out to Dunk. Uh, it's interesting. They're two different ideas and concepts, but places that are kind of similar in that mm. idea of commerce happening. Uh, winter is the house of black and white for them. It's all around them. So I'm curious about these ships, because as we know, Wyman goes to Winterfell and is like, wild card bitches. Uh this obviously, again, is a hint to show us that Wyman was preparing for war. Maybe they'll be used against Euron. I could see that happening. Moreover, I think it's going to be an endgame thing. I think these ships will definitely be an endgame for either the North or the South or whoever needs them. After all of the ships are depleted, a dream of spring looking at you. Obviously, Wyman's building them for war and because he expects war, right? He expects if the Lannisters find out he's betraying them or pulling one over on them in the Freys and the Boltons, uh, he might be under attack sometime soon. But I don't really foresee anyone other than Whites actually attacking the North anytime soon. Like in the actual books, I just really don't see anyone coming North and attacking them. I think everyone's going to be real busy south with Euron and with all the batshit crazy things to come in the Winds of Winter. So I'm curious if these ships will likely go south in the end. Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing that kind of makes sense, right? Or, like, I have no idea the capabilities of the others in terms of the seas and naval stuff. Like, did, are ships effective against them at all? Do we need the ships against them? I don't know. We we literally don't have that information. And you were talking about if they're going south and, and what he's going to use it for and that they're being built. And I kind of wonder, do the Lannisters in the phrase know that he's building ships? And do they think that the ships are for them? Because that's something else, too, then. If he's like, oh, all these ships that are for you, they are not for you. Uh... They are for you and that I am going to use them to kill you. Oh, these? I just got them the other day. They were a hand-me-down. This old thing. That's what I want. Do they know? And, like, is he going to cross them and be like, psych? I mean, they're inside, so they have to know. Exactly. Like, it's there in plain sight if you're at the castle. But, but uh, that is kills- Lyman's whole thing. Yeah. That's his whole thing. They're in plain sight. But he does kill those frays. Yeah, he does. Oh, he does some shit. So- And then when we leave him- when we last left him, he was keeled over. It, it might be a secret, right? Because it seems like the the gossip isn't really referring to it right now. The gossip all says that Manderly's staying out of it. So 
Maybe, I guess, the Lannisters in the phrase don't really know and he's trying to keep it a secret and kill some. But we'll, we'll probably talk about it more, of course, in the later yes. chapters. We kind of, that's kind of what the whole next few chapters are about. Yes, we will get the big reveal on Wyman's plan. But for now, we'll close out Davos 2. The gates of the new castle have been closed, but a postern opened when he shouted, and a guard emerged to ask his business. Davos showed him the black and gold ribbon that bore the royal seals. I need to see Lord Manderley at once, he said. My business is with him, and him alone. And that is Davos too in A Dance with Dragons. You all can catch us next week in Davos 3 as Davos is taken into the wolf's den. Or the, or, or the fish, the mermaid's den, right? Under the sea to Ariel's grotto. But Okay. <laughs> a lot of ideas flying at me right now, but I'm going to go with them. Good There's idea, Eliana. Yep. Yep. With a dingle you know, hopper. You can catch all of Eliana's hot ideas when they're not here on the podcast. Also, you can see them here and there in our social media, right? At Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N on Twitter. Or if you want to email and converse with us about something you thought about the episode or questions or thoughts, etc., uh, send us an email. Same place, girlsgonecanon at gmail.com, though. And of course, stay tuned for the thoughts that we do share on the podcast. You can subscribe to us on many different platforms, such as Podbean, where these are all hosted. Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, Pandora, Amazon Podcasts. I didn't read. I, I didn't reach them all. I'm sorry. <laughs> I tried. Oh, you look us up, and you will find us there. We promise. And make sure you subscribe to us on Patreon. Give us a quick follow if you have a Patreon, and if some money jangling around in the bottom of your pocket, and you want to send it over to us, feel free to do that. You don't have to. Patreon.com/slash/girlsgonecanon. Every month, five dollar and up patrons of the Stranger tier get a special bonus episode on something very entertaining last month it was on Kohor in our tour of the free cities this coming month it will be on something to do with his dark materials you will learn about that very soon we also have a discord that members in the thunder tier ten dollars or above get access to a private discord server where we talk about everything under the sun whether it's a song of ice and fire Davos being stupid and he should have gone home with Salador, video games, food, you name it, we're there chatting about it with our friends. Indeed, and people have started streaming their own plays of various Aswaf mods of other games, which has been fun. And Yeah, that's been really cool to see. Yeah, I, d I didn't know some of these things existed, so pretty, pretty cool. And... And then once a month on our Discord, we do get together, do something kind of like a PowerPoint potluck, but that'll be called brunch slash happy hour because we're going to throw in a lot of like different food metaphors here for everything because that's, that's what we do. We think about food a lot. <laughs> and to be fair, a lot of time zones, right? We, mm -hmm. we're, we're handling a lot of time zones. Everybody's from a different time zone. It's really fun though. It's really fun. So Definitely come join us and hang out for that. We had a blast last month. It was bird-themed for our friend Cassidy's Burb Day. Mm -hmm. It was a great name day, indeed. Well, as always, thank you so much for listening to us this week. We'll see you next week with Davos 3. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana.
Divus. De. In a de. With de. De. A de. With de. I can't believe he had the audacity to think that. The audacity. <laughs> the audacity. Yep. Yeah. Amelie on Paris. <laughs> I do like the movie Amelie, though. Actually, we both watched Emily in Paris. And... <laughs> uh, sorry, Emily, Emilis in Paris. It's supposed to rhyme, Chloe. They, they told us. Emily in Parasite. <laughs> Goodbye. The best.